This is a repost of Journal Club number 29. Due to a technical glitch in my brain yesterday, I posted last episode's audio with this episode's information. I corrected this 45 minutes after posting it, but it still hasn't updated on some of the listening app. If you notice this happening again, you can always listen directly on kratomscience.com podcast. Sorry. None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of the website kratomscience.com should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for kratomscience.com, your source for all things kratom. This is a study from 2019. It was published in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. It's called The Trouble with Kratom Analytical and Interpretative Issues Involving Mitragenine or Mitragynine. Uh, that's what uh, they call it at the University of Florida. They say Mitragynine. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I think it's either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have to have. Uh, there has to be like a Kratom Summit or a Kratom Summit where we all decide on how to pronounce these things. So this is a team from, uh, what's the lab called? NMS Labs in Horsham, Pennsylvania. And this, it's, it's a team that. of toxicologists and mm-hmm. also some people from North Carolina, including Justin Brower, who I just watched him give a talk on uh, the myth of fentanyl exposure, it was a it was like a police it was a police officer response to drugs. So there was a lot of police on it on the webinar. I should have written down what the group was called, but I think it was a group out of North Carolina. But he he's in Raleigh. This Just, Justin Brower, and he's on Twitter. He's a toxicologist, but he gave an excellent talk on the myth of fentanyl exposure. There's a lot of police who believe that if you touch fentanyl it can be absorbed through the skin and you can get you can get high or overdose on it so there's a lot of fear around that and he uh he put some of those concerns to rest so this is interesting um because i've had a similar experience not with fentanyl so during grad school you know we had the dea schedule one through four license so we had all sorts of uh, things going to and fro. We had two different buildings that we worked in. I won't give his name, but he was the closest lab tech. He went to undergrad and who I knew was really good at chemistry. I called him up. He came out and, and he started working in the lab. So one day he's either going home or going somewhere. And on his body uh, are some cannabis um, and then also a small test tube of like liquid in it that purportedly has LSD in it. Okay. So He's driven to this place many times. It's at night. Um, he's been known to be a crazy driver. But essentially what had happened to him was uh, two police cars came flying out of the side street into the main street such that, like, one car got to the front of him and he sort of had to slam his brakes to slow down to not hit that cop. And then the car behind him didn't notice it either. So the back cop, the, the cop rear-ended him. 
So now they got to get out and address this guy and talk about what happened. And everyone's, you know, not really worried about how the accident went down. Um, and they must have said something to him like, do you have any cannabis in the car? Because they got the cannabis and they go, you know, we know. And they start getting into those games where it's like, oh, we know this isn't all your cannabis. Like, go get, go get the rest of it and do that stuff. And you got to think that he has a little tiny jar that's screwed in and it just looks like a clear formula. Like, there's no way visually to confirm whether or not there is actually a surgic dathlathamine in this vial. Like, he knows it's there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is, you know, a, a testament to his honesty and character or he was just dumb. But when they were searching his car, one of the cops grabbed the glass and said, what's in here? And he said, that's LSD. And the cop immediately started freaking out, like freaking, freaking, freaking out. I think I got some on me. I think I'm going to be insane for the rest of my life. Like a complete total panic attack. And my buddy who was in the interaction with the cops like this, he's like, dude, I've never been sitting in the back of a cop car having them look up on Arrowhead use reports on LSD because they have no idea what they're talking about, like at all whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and gosh, it's just so funny. I mean, you know, the, with the, with the fentanyl, there's, I think some, some truth to that with LSD, there's obviously not, but no one talks about it very much. So they don't really, you know, I could see how cops would have that, but it seems to be the guys on that side of like drug education, right? Like they're telling kids to hate drugs so much. They start hating them themselves. Maybe we need to lay off. But ultimately, Brian, that all after that whole entire story, when he got his follow up from the court, uh, he had a charge for like some just minor weed amount of cannabis that eventually just got dropped. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. That's not interesting. <laughs> so we didn't say anything about the, the LSD or whatever. Yeah. And it basically just comes down to the fact that the highway patrol, like these drug lab, highway patrol drug labs, only have the instrumentation that they bought and are trained to use. And 80% of the stuff coming through the door is cannabis. So they'll get their best tested cannabis, but they had no way of testing if there was LSD in there or not. Oh, um, so shit. Never brought it up again. Oh, that's pretty awesome. I, I, I didn't I realize that. Is that a current you know, thing? Our lab would have got the call. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I assume they test for like, you know, heroin, opiates, cocaine, uh, marijuana, but not um, LSD or mushrooms because they're so infrequent. If you're not going to charge somebody, if you're not going to go through with a prosecution, there's no need. Right. Yeah. And um, so so what Justin Brower said was basically you can only ingest fentanyl through your mouth, your eyes, your nose. Uh, and he, he even brought up a case where a guy put a bag of fentanyl up his butt because he didn't want to get caught and it actually broke and it was everywhere and it got all over everybody and all the cops that were searching him because uh, they actually did search him there. Uh, I think he was arrested and <laughs> nobody got high. I mean, maybe he, the guy got a little high. But um, that was that was the idea. It was like you can't. He said he was going to hold fentanyl's hand for the talk, but he said he couldn't get any type of legal clearance uh. to do that. And you know he's presenting to a bunch of cops, so it probably wouldn't have been a good good idea. But it was a good it was a good presentation. And it, I'm just yeah, I'm just worried for anybody that buys heroin on the street. It, there's going to be fentanyl in it, so. You have to be very careful of hundred percent underground yeah, powders. At this point, the, you know the the days of yarn are very very long gone, and it's just like 
you know, I think at least the people that didn't die who were still around, they, this like very real chance, well, 100% chance you don't know what you're getting and very real chance that you are getting like, it's, it's kind of like acid in that we're talking about micrograms of yeah. uh, mass in order to get an effect. And so if a guy's mixing this in a Lowe's plastic garbage can, you think he just sort of like opens a baggie and just taps it in real quick and just gives it a good stir with his oar and calls it a day. Like it, <laughs> the room for variance and error there uh, scares me far, 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 far too much. But another thing that changed was how quickly the cartels started getting fake press pills and, and were pressing them to look like it. It's unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. There's a podcast I listen to called Tuesdays with Stories. It's uh, these two comedians, Mark Norman and Joe oh, yeah. List. Mark Norman and Joe List? Yeah, yeah. Come on now. I love it. I was just listening to Norman special. Nice, yep. nice. He's awesome. I love him. I still haven't seen him yet. I saw Joe mm-hmm. List open for, we went We went out to Akron, actually, and I saw him open for uh, Louis C.K. Well, That's the first time I saw Joe List. And then I found that they had a podcast. Um, like, but but anyway, he, he's he, playing in Columbus. He's yeah. playing in Columbus on the 18th this weekend. Oh, really? I'm going to go, I think. He, he asked the uh, guy at the club at, at a show he was playing, he said, can you give me a couple of Xanax? Uh, I, uh, I have insomnia. I wasn't sleep, didn't sleep very well. He gave him these two green pills and that he thought were Xanax, and he said he took them, and he just passed out and could not wake up. He was, like, waiting to get into his hotel room, and he passed out in the lobby, and they couldn't wake him up. And uh, he said it ended up being green hulks, which are fentanyl. They're, like, pressed pills. I think I heard that one. Yeah, I yeah. think I heard that one. Which is it's pretty a wild crazy. world out there. So this paper is about Kratom toxicology and mitragynine, or mitragynine toxicology. Kratom is relatively safe. Uh, we know that, but I just want people to know that you can have a toxic event on kratom uh if you can get water toxicity then you can get toxicity with anything i just want people to realize that like if you went out and got a case of shots and you did them one after the other you're getting in a dangerous territory if you want to take it to the furthest extreme it is water is toxic if you have too much of it meaning you yeah. fall into a lake and you can't swim water's toxic yeah um and so Everything has its limits. Nothing should be done in excess. But in terms of its um, abuse potential or addictivity or um, uh, hardness of a drug is very similar to that of like chocolate, caffeine, or cannabis. I wouldn't say it's any worse than that. The point I've been bringing up is, you know, if people are eating like grinding up like a pound of coffee and trying to eat as much of it as they could possibly eat, they would probably die sooner than if they did that with kratom uh or they would have liver toxicity sooner because caffeine as it is is a pretty toxic pound for pound substance in coffee uh it's more toxic than mitragynine according to some Mm -hmm. couple of mouse studies but people we all know how to do coffee it's in our culture it's in it's so ingrained that people don't even realize how toxic caffeine can be i i mean i know somebody i have a friend who drank like four pots of coffee a day and she ran into health problems but i just want people to know that just because kratom is relatively safer can be habit forming if you're not careful and it also can be toxic in high doses uh like generally your gi tract in your stomach you get a little bit nauseous 
But I know that I've always taken too much, and it seems to be pretty widely discussed on the internet, this thing called wobbly eye. It just seems like you're having a hard time keeping your vision focused. And it's, and, and like literally like your eyes are wobbling back and forth. And so uh, that's a clear indication that you shouldn't be consuming anymore. You know, give yourself a, a night's sleep or 24 hours. The difference between opiates is that when you take too much, uh, you stop breathing. Okay, so here we go with this paper. Um it's called The Trouble with Kratom, Analytical and Interpretive Issues Involving Mitragenine, uh, Journal of Analytical Toxicology. Here's what they did. Over the course of 27 months, 1,001 blood specimens submitted to our laboratory uh, tested positive for mitragenine using a sensitive and specific LC.MSMS method. Concentrations range from 5.6 to 29,000 nanograms per milliliter in the blood. So they're just looking at all these uh, mitragenine blood samples, and some of them involved deaths. Most of them didn't. I think all of the deaths were polysubstance use, except for the one with 29,000 nanograms per milliliter. That was... I think of my tragedy and intoxication, and this person may have been trying to commit suicide because you would have to consume a lot. They probably drank a ton of extracts or something like that, Um, sadly. Got dehydrated and died. And they even took that one out to get a better, you know, average or something. Uh, yeah, it, it was like an outlier. Uh, it says the highest reported mitragenine blood result from the original data set is 29,000 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, stems from a post-mortem case where the report was issued 60 days after sample collection. So, 29-year-old male packages of Kratom products labeled Mangda Kratom Power, 60 grams. Uh, Mitragena Speciosa, Kratom SEM, 20 grams. The Mangda powder doesn't seem like what did it, unless he probably took a bunch of Kratom in a small time. Um, he also had an e-cigarette with methamphetamine in the cartridge. Um, left and right. Yeah, so actually, literally all these were polydrug deaths, but it wasn't a 1,001 death. It was from uh, DUI cases. Um, you were just talking about the eye wobbles. There was a DUI case, uh, 39-year-old year old man who had the he got the eye wobbles while he's driving so he was unable to focus and he was swerving and they pulled him over so uh yeah it's good idea maybe not to drive uh until an hour or so after you take kratom or if it's particularly high dose or if you get one of those shots and chug the whole thing uh you might get eye wobbles so it might proved to be uh, dangerous for driving. But, Do um, drugs for the first time in a safe environment where you have yeah. everything you need and you yes. don't need to go anywhere. Drug use 101. Preferably with someone who's done it before. If you've never had coffee before, I would say don't drive right after coffee, even though it's perfectly fine for driving and usually Kratom is too, but you know, you might get a little... Uh, Startle reflex. Surge of energy and yeah. uh, floor it in a uh, residential area or something. <laughs> 
they basically just looked at all these cases and they were trying to get some kind of uh, conclusion out of it. Um, I found a mistake in the introduction. It says my tragedy is reportedly 13 times more potent than morphine. That was wrong. Telephone game. <laughs> yeah. I looked at the... Uh, okay, so I looked at the um, references. They put three references after that. Uh, the, the only one that was open access, the one I looked at, it, I'll quote from that article where they reference its potency is one-fourth that of morphine. That's what they say about my tragenine. They also say in this article that they referenced uh, 7-hydroxymetragenine, a minor constituent of M. speciosa, was found to exhibit high potency to opioid receptors, approximately 13 to 46-fold higher than morphine. That's 7-hydroxy, and we've all... We've always said that about that. Uh, Dr. McCurdy said it's pretty strong. The, the number eight reference um, is a study on 7-hydroxy. So there's, I don't think there's any comparison of my tragedy to morphine in that. Uh, reference nine is uh, kratom extract in mice. Uh, there's no, my tragedy to morphine to morphine comparison in the abstract so I think they just made a mistake uh, so my tragenine is not I don't think 13 times more potent than morphine it's like with their reference said it's a quarter uh, as and it, potent and we just called uh, that into question I think in the last paper too whether or not that was just sort of a boogeyman right yeah um, and I'd also just like to commend you you know for uh, for the last few years now we've been hearing a whole lot of do the research. You go do your own research. Yeah. Well, Brian just gave a very good example of what real research actually is, where you evaluate the cited references of somebody trying to make a statement and see if their statement accurately reflects the sources, not go look for more sources that agree with the point you're trying to do. Good job, Brian. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, I'm doing science here. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, and, and so basically, like, these are a list of case reports. Um, each report mostly involved polydrug use. I, I've been looking for an article. I'm doing a liver toxicity article, and, and every single case report I find, either the person has fatty liver disease and they don't know it, or somebody was taking, like, 3,500 milligrams of Tylenol a day. But the, but the issue, I think, is, the question is, does my tragenine increase the effects of other drugs? Which I think there is a concern for that. Um, it, it could uh, slow the metabolism of other drugs. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a few angles to think about that in, and it's valuable to... To bring that up, I mean, it doesn't in and of itself, it is a molecule that binds to a receptor site uh, in the synapses on neurons. It's not an, uh, something that does enzymatic degradation itself. Um, it has to be degraded by enzymes that are presumably also degrading other things. And so it, it could also, you know, just keep dopamine levels elevated or serotonin levels elevated to where you're not like depressed and feeling bad. Um, but then you're also taking like antidepressants, which do the same thing. So you could have some compounding effects there, which get dangerous if it's, um, you know, reaching external, uh, neurocytoxic levels. Um, but I think we're just now getting to like actually hone in on what the LD50 is. And if there were any very clear deadly interactions, we certainly would have known of them by now. 
33-year-old male found in the bathroom after drinking 10-plus malt drinks, which I don't know what a malt drink is. Maybe it's Kratom tea or... Uh, malt milkshake? Malt, malt liquor. <laughs> uh, he took two Adderall, history of alcohol and prescription drug abuse, no non-prescribed meds found at the scene. This other guy had a history of back injury, prescribed methadone, and gabapentin. I, I think there was, there was some where it said, you know, they're not taking a strong amount of the other substance. And so the question is, you know, does my tragenine you know, increase the, or slow down the metabolism if they're not taking a strong amount of um, the other substances. And there's also a concern that, that there are some companies that are taking 7-hydroxy extract and sprinkling it on the regular powder uh, just to get people addicted, which that should be, you know, outlawed. And, and, and some of these uh, new KCPA laws are... It's saying that, you know, you can't have more than 2% of alkaloids of uh, 7-hydroxy, given that it probably is 13 times more powerful than uh, morphine on the opioids. But there's only trace amounts of it in regular kratom. Yeah, I actually ran into that. I was over in D.C. this weekend, um, and it's weird to see, you know, CBD and kratom have basically made it to every gas station counter. Uh, there is, which I think there's some interesting sort of how fast that occurred uh, is pretty yeah. interesting. But, you know, back in the day, or the one most widely reported one that's sort of like Krypton, Kryptonite, um, they did an analysis and they found, I think, codeine and some other drugs. So it was alter- adulterated, not necessarily with more 7-hydroxy, right? That type of um, manufacturing procedure is what we do with the Delta 8 and Delta 10 stuff, right? We extract it yeah. like that and then add that back in. In this case, it was codeine and other sort of like research chemical opiates, which are more dangerous. And so I told the guy about it and he didn't really do much. And I'm like, you need to take these off the shelf and throw them away. These are like known contaminated products that people can get really sick on. Um, not to mention they taste like shit. So get rid of these things. What, what were they? Which product? Which uh, uh, they were extracts? Krypton. Really? Somebody was selling yeah. Krypton. Wow. I haven't seen it in a while, but yeah, Krypton, and it was a little liquid. Is is that with the O-dismethyl tramadol in it? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. I didn't even know they were still selling that. That's like nine people in Sweden. Sweden died of it. There has been a. Uh, reports in Denver of people selling uh, Tianapatine is that how you pronounce it Um, and also Phenobut as Kratom Uh, so there's like an extract Tianapatine and uh, Phenobut which are both uh, more dependency uh, potential than than kratom itself, or even a kratom extract. Um, so people have been selling those as kratom, which is why some of these laws I agree with. I, I just think there should be an alkaloid profile. Uh, people should definitely know what they're putting in their in their body, and uh, whoever sold it like that, I think should be prosecuted or at least uh, fined and not allowed to sell that anymore because it's. I don't know. Kratom works on its own. Quality Kratom, and it and it's very mild, and it's beneficial for most people. 
And I want to look at these toxicology things because I want people to be safe and not become addicted and so addicted that they're chugging down, you know, a pound of kratom in an hour and having a toxic reaction. So what they looked at, it, which was really weird, it, I'll just read. Uh, Although most reports of mitragynine-related fatalities include other drugs, there have been instances where other drugs and drug concentrations were determined to be insufficient to cause death. Many of these, the deaths involve autopsy findings consistent with opioid toxicity, including pulmonary congestion, cerebral edema, and urinary retention. Blood mitragynine concentrations of 230, 600, and 1,060 nanograms per milliliter have been reported in cases where other substances were found to be insignificant or did not explain the autopsy findings, which were often consistent with opioid use. Conversely, there are some reported cases where an elevated mitragynine concentration was detected. However, the cause of death was unrelated to the ingested drugs. Mitragenine confirmed at a concentration of 980 nanograms per milliliter in a case where the individual died from asphyxia. Mitragenine concentrations were all over the place on the chart, so it's so it's kind of hard to pinpoint like this is how much it'll kill you and this is how much combined with another drug that'll kill you and it's it's just because because they're all over the place it's really hard to come to some um definite conclusion well you know that's in psychopharm that's why you have to do these ld50 studies right Mm -hmm. so you're not going to find people ld50 stands for um a lethal dose when taken by up to 50% of the subjects you're giving it to, they die. So the yeah. dose in which 50% people start dying. So you obviously can't do that with humans uh, yeah. for a number of reasons. So they have to do it with the smaller animals. And so it's different. Um, it looks like, you know, um, it was in mice, tw- uh, 22 milligrams per kilogram. Let's assume someone is roughly 150 pounds or 68 kilograms. It would take 32,500 milligrams to reach the LD50 of metragenine. So you'd have to take 500 milligrams, which would be 100 capsules. Yeah, of pure metragenine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was this other um, issue of the diastrometers. Is that how you pronounce that? The chromatography machines? The actual yes. Chemists? Yes. Well, let me, let me tee this up then just okay. a little bit too, because I think everything that we've been talking about thus far has sort of been on par for the course. You know, um, a statement is made about the uncertainty regarding its safety. They want to go out and figure out what that safety level is. Um, and so they're proceeding like any any other like psychodynamics uh, study would. However, either these guys are in the analytical chemistry department and have been working with the other teams in Florida working on Kratom. Um, But ultimately, I think the real message and point of this paper is that if you are going to be studying Kratom and you're studying these micro concentrations, you want to quantify a very small amount of how much is it in your sample much like we're doing with uh, the medical cannabis products here in Ohio, you know, what is the THC level exactly? You have to go through something called method validation and method validation can take anywhere from a month to three and a half years. And the, the less that's known about what you're validating to do, the longer it takes usually. And it also just depends on how anal your chemist is, but the purpose is, 
is the method that we've implemented successfully quantifying the target compounds we say that we're supposed to be targeting. Um, and so there's a bunch of details that came up, but I just want to give people that context before we start getting into the, the nitty gritty of analytical chemistry, because I can, I can tell you this, they're very much right. Um, you have to make sure that what you're measuring is representative and accurate to what, because those numbers that you're reporting then become basically the you know, law and Bible, and they can't just be like, you're not, you're not throwing darts at a dartboard here. I'll, I'll read it. The stability of metragenine in biological specimens also needs to be assessed to understand how delays in time between specimen collection and sample analysis may affect the reported concentrations. Since the result of toxicological tests and forensic cases forensic cases are used to interpret the potential lethality of a concentration it is imperative to understand if any intoxicant concentrations such as nitrogenine change between sample collection analysis now that's just time shelf life yeah uh they say it, it's uh 30 day, days in a freezer and it looks like a freezer is the a the freezer is the best. It will stay good. The concentrations will remain unchanged if kept in a freezer. But around yeah. day 30, 40, if you have it at room temperature with some amount of light protection, um, you're going to, you know, you're starting at 16 nanograms per milliliter and starting at around day eight, by the time we get to day 31, you have gone from 60 nanograms per milliliter down to two nanograms per milliliter, which is very interesting. And I don't, I'm unaware of any vendors or retailers that are aware that this, how, how sharply this occurs. Makes sense why the people that are doing the fresh flower, like sort of right from the source, say that it's different. And so the other, the other um, situation was it uh, and I might even play the clip. I might even add in the clip later of uh, Doctor uh, Abhishek Sharma, who's on the show, and he he brought this up to me that the other alkaloids are so similar. They're so similar to mitragenine that um, it's all been quantified as mitragenine. So in a lot of these toxicological reports, they think all these four alkaloids are mitragenine. So they're they're saying that there's more in the blood than there actually is. So um, I'll, I'll just read the Sharma interview. He said, if you look closely at metragenine, speciogenine, speciociliatine, and mitraciliatine, by normal eyes, you cannot find the difference. You need, like, really good eyes to find the difference. Uh, so these four mo- molecules are diastereomers. So if I'm using, for example, quadruple mass spec to analyze my metragenine and the Chromatography is not good enough to separate these four, mitragenine, speciogenine, speciocilatine, mitracilatine. I will qua- quantify all these as mitragenine. And I asked him, did you did that have any effect on the toxicity studies and the autopsies of people who had mitragenine in their blood? And he was like, yes. Like, he said it like that. Yes. Of he's course like, it did. Yeah, he's like, yeah. there's a possibility of many of the studies. When you look at chromatograms in different reports, you will see only one peak. This is possible when I'm taking mitragenine only, but if I'm taking a Kratom product, then I should have all four diastereomers 
in my system. Uh, so if he's yeah. not seeing four peaks in the chromatogram, all four quantifies metragenine. Um, so it either means like many of the reports, they're, they're showing that there was more metragenine than's actually there, but does it mean that it's toxic at lower doses than what they are finding? Or does it mean uh, that that didn't account for the death at all and they're they're overestimating it i would say that well let's start at the beginning so because I, I found the paragraph here on there are 20 different alkaloids in kratom but all um have the same core structure um and have three different chiral centers and so for those of you who haven't taken chemistry and understand this word chiral they always have you look at your hands you have a left and you have a right hand. And in, in certain parameters, you could put one hand on top of the other and they line up perfectly because they're the exact in the exact same confirmation. But if you put one of your hands and if you flip them over with your hand, the palms down, and then you put them over each other, the thumbs stick out the side. And so a, a, an enantiomer is a, a mirrored like twin of a compound, but because of the way the strong weak forces of the, the atoms are holding it together, they're in different conformations. Um, and it's been a very active bed of research. And like, you know, I know that um, in ADHD medications, for example, the stimulants, there are the L and the R enantiomer of amphetamines. And I think that there was about a decade there where they were pulling L out because they thought L was responsible for like the jitteriness, the loss of appetite, the sort of unwanted side effects, whereas the right one uh, actually achieved the goals with, with ADHD. And so that was a, a hypothesis. I would say, now, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for the, for the numbers that are currently on the market? Well, I don't know. In, I, I defaultly respond to that question as a social scientist and compare it to cannabis in that, like, no matter what the scientists are doing, there are a large amount of people consuming this on their own and they're not dropping dead like flies. So to say that somehow, like, well, well, we do the science and now it's unsafe. Well, no, everybody's always been consuming it like that. It hasn't been unsafe then. Just because we know this now, it doesn't mean that it's unsafe. Um, but it does mean, so, so I don't find it to be like an enormous public health risk, but it was about time uh, someone had to come out with this paper to say like, whoa, 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 guys. Like finally, you know, real uh, anal analytical chemists got involved in measuring this. And like, what about all these other spikes, fellas? What's this all about? Um and in a very analogous way, the state has sent us letters now that in all the medical cannabis products in Ohio, we're going to have to test for THC-8, THC-9, and THC-10. Wow. And they're obviously so close to each other that it's going to be a real like technical hurdle to overcome to be able to do that accurately. Yeah. Uh, is it going to like raise the price of weed in Ohio? God, there's no room there. Can't go up there. <laughs> um, yeah, same with Pennsylvania. 
I even my yeah. I even tell my friends that are heavy smokers don't even bother getting a card because it's you're you're just gonna spend more money. <laughs> like if you go through an ounce a week, you're better off uh, buying on the underground market. <laughs> oh, I would disagree. I would disagree. Really? I would disagree. I disagree heavily. I would disagree. I would wreck anybody okay. who is consuming cannabis for whatever reason to go get your medical card because if you have your medical card. And you get pulled over and you show them your medical That's card. That's true. They yeah. will no longer ask you anything else again. Um, yeah. And it's always been that way. I mean, I got it when I moved to California immediately. It, there's an option there where the law says, get this card and you'll be good. So I'm getting Yeah. Card. Yeah. You're right about that. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's it's worth it for, I spend, well, I spent, it's, initially it's $250 and I spend $150 a year. So yeah, being legal is definitely better. That's, that's right. But financially, financially it's, uh, it sucks, uh, to actually buy legal weed for somebody that smokes heavily, but, uh, hopefully that can change. They need, they really in Pennsylvania, they needed to, uh, issue more grow licenses because the supplies was really low for a while now it's okay but uh interesting interesting yeah and just because you have a card doesn't mean you have to buy there although yeah yeah although i would say you have to at least uh you know if you don't go get anything that first year you're not and you go to get your license renewed the doctor's gonna be like so you use this um zero times yeah <laughs> and, you, and you want another one yeah so really <laughs> be, be aware of that and, and there's also like you know i say some of these things in jest but there are also what's nice in Ohio is there are usually pharmacists or very knowledgeable people there that will probably be able to help you make decisions based on how, you know, no matter what you're using it for, no matter how you're using it, they can help you optimize that use case more so than a guy behind 7-Eleven. So yeah, yeah. Prices are rough. Um, but there are a lot of good reasons to get the medical card. I'm just looking, okay. Uh, just looking back at the paper, uh, under method, it says the following analytical method was developed, validated, and used to separate mitragenine diastereomers. Did you look at that? And and do you want to comment on exactly what they're doing? And it, it talks about how how exactly they separated uh, the um, other alkaloids from mitragenine. MRM stands for multi-residue method, and we run into this um, all the time with pesticides. And so in certain multiple reaction monitoring is what it stands for. I just double check that I, that I got that right. Multiple reaction monitoring. So, okay. All chromatography machines have two steps. The first one is the separation phase and it generally happens in a column. The columns can be custom designed and custom ordered. If you wanted to separate molecules on pH, on size, on attractiveness to hydrophobic or hydrophilic, you push your sample through this long column and it's going to start separating the molecules that are in there from each other. And then if you just shoot that past the detector, you're just going to start seeing the peaks emerge. So depending on how, like, let's say it was pH and it was a very um, basic pH. So the acidic compounds went through faster. You're now going to see those start to throw spikes. And based on how long it took them to get out of the column, the retention time, as well as the peak of the spike, that's how you quantify how much of this particular molecule was in that sample. Now, when you have several, like let's say we have 20 samples where we're running through the chromatograph, 
to get separation. The five of those are very, very similar. They're enantiomers of each other, which they're essentially the same. So they could come out and only display one peak and they're together, which makes the configuration of the instrument a little bit more difficult because you know that there are two under there. Now, how can you separate them from each other? Mm-hmm. What most um, LC triple quads do is they essentially run the sample uh, liquid through the, through the separation. And before it gets to the detector, it goes through what's called a collision cell. And in these LC triple quads, there's two collision cells. And like, you know, the more you look at it and the more you like understand about what's going on in here, it's like these guys are building, you know, electromagnetic sub sub tunnels on the death star like this is nuts because what they're doing is waiting for the molecules of interest to get into this little tiny uh like open airspace surrounded by magnets so they can hold it in there and lock it in there and then they'll pick one or two different ways to affect it or blow it up so let's blow it up now and then let's push the fragments of what were left back out into the detector and so depending on how those molecules break up and explode, you can generally use the signature from what's left after the explosion to say, this peak was for eight, this peak was for nine, and uh, you know, 10 is, there were such low levels of 10 that we haven't figured that out yet. But you are essentially separating the ones that are very closely related by destroying them and then watching what scatters. It's like, you know, like if we were both in there at the same time, and we got this, uh, something that, that scattered us. You leave with your arm and your leg holding each other. And I just sort of fall off into four pieces. Well, you holding your leg in, in that confirmation means that you were a different one than what I was. So it's a little gruesome of a visual there, but I hope I'm making sense. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That totally makes sense. And I'm looking at the discussion now, and they're talking about the uh, post-mortem cases, and it said uh, 81% of cases had a result of less than 500 nanograms per milliliter. 92% of cases had less than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, and they even say there is a need to evaluate each case individually, taking into, into account scene investigation, medical history, and autopsy findings. And this came out in 2019. This is three years ago, and I, I don't think they're doing that yet as the diagnosis becomes one of exclusion. And that's the thing. Um, we've been just getting kind of slammed with people who are uh, in all the all the uh, kratom advocacy accounts? Uh, who said, you know, my son died of this, my husband died. Uh, it was kratom, and I'm thinking, you know, when I look at these, it's like they just ruled everything out. Uh, they had my tragedy in their blood, and in some cases, it might have caused death. And um, but family members are being told in many cases it's death by my tragedy toxicity just because everything else is ruled out uh serious you know drug history um and you know maybe they weren't using other drugs on that day but maybe their liver was you know shot to shit it's tough it's tough and you see all the controversy that's come out about in terms of counting cause of death with covid and everything too and and you know, most people are saying the COVID numbers are overreported. I guess that would primarily be people more on the right or concerned about the government making it appear more serious or deadly than it actually is. But in my experience, actually, when I got COVID, when my wife got COVID, 
My father did as well. We called him first. He went and got the PCR test. He came back positive. We had already failed two of the antibody tests at home. Uh So in our mind, it was, well, we've got it. Well, we'll just stay here. Like, so we weren't even added to a list of people who got it. So there seems to be like no human system is perfect, obviously. And especially when there's a death of a child involved who had a drug problem and teasing apart all of these various threads can be enormously difficult. And you're really just trying to provide comfort to the people who are, you know, going through that loss. But um, I think this paper does bring, you know, a very good technical problem uh, that can be translated over to how it how it affects the development of our rules and regulations and our ability to actually monitor um, fatalities should they exist. Yeah, I mean, and and I realize there's a case of money. I mean, I think at least with this elected corn, like I could go to a, I've said this before, but I could go to a class and for 12 hours and become a coroner in certain states. I, I don't consider myself qualified to test and see what, what caused people to die. But but on the other hand, it it's better to be moderate about uh, you putting any substance in your body, including uh, Kratom. And uh, I, I just want to... If anybody's listening to this, I just want to warn people that you know it can be toxic and and it's 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 tough to do it. I mean, it's just as tough as like uh, taking too much coffee. It's like it just feels better to not take all that much. But uh, I just you know want people to know you can't just you know drink a case of kratom uh, sh- shots and expect that you won't have some kind of at least nauseous reaction you're gonna have to pay your taxes yeah at some point yeah. and and it's by far and large when you're on the subreddit um cruising around and people are talking about like tolerance blanks instead of the other thing is it yeah. seems to be people get to the point where they're so experienced with using kratom they're like veteran kratom users that they know that sometimes taking less is more powerful and it's a weird it doesn't happen all the time but it definitely does happen sometimes and it's you got to fight that urge the the like the american uh you know economies of never are ever growing perpetual or more and more and more like more 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 is not always uh, better in yeah. many senses yeah and i think i think it was just with this whole kratom issue it's 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 a chance for us to like level up on our knowledge of drugs collectively as a society because it's all there it's like it's it's you know it can be addicted people can be addicted to it uh and you just have to be careful you most likely won't become addicted to it but then that goes for other drugs uh alcohol cocaine heroin most people who use those don't become addicted uh addiction is a psychological problem it's like it's it's such an this issue is such an opportunity to learn uh about this whole drug problem and also how they help us uh Mm -hmm. you know it's either you can go one way or the other you know most people are having successful use. I mean, it, me, me and my wife maybe were once a week or, or twice a week. I haven't used it in a few weeks. So I would just say that, yeah, be cautious. You have to be responsible. I mean, that's why kids shouldn't have Kratom. Um, I got something up on top here that really caught my eye. Have you ever heard of the word medical legal? Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. What the hell does that mean? 
It's just like, so I guess anything, anything, drugs are, are in the medical legal uh, category because it's related to medical laws legal and drugs. I'm trying to think of other ones we can make that would merge like. Like, Props uh, to whoever made that word up. That, that is some. That is some. Uh, you know, high, highfalutin academia right there. Medico, <laughs> medico legal. That's the That's kind of important. shit that would give me a in on on a paper in uh, English course in college. I think we're in the medi- medico legal space when we talk about cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like if I come to the cannabis museum and smoke cannabis, it'll be a medical legal issue. So what? What? When do you think uh, April four twenty would be ideal, huh? Uh, the target date's four twenty, but as a bunch of stoners, we're going to be a little bit past that. Um, <laughs> but the cannabis museum here in Athens, Ohio, is finally uh, moving out of its private exhibition collection, and they have a, an exhibit space now. Um, that's going to be open to the public to come check out the collection and there'll be like a coffee shop there and nice. people will get to hang out. Oh, yeah, so when, I will you know, it's, it's past sure 420. You know about that. Hell yeah, it's I'll fun. come. 420 is the target. Um, this is an old building in an old mining community too. So there's like tra- trails that go back in the woods and old mine shaft that can be explored. That's awesome. Know, they're, they're building it all up. But they did a gutting on this thing, like brought it up to speed. And then when they came and started doing code enforcement, they're like, oh, well, what about the sprinklers? What about the security system? So they like sort of called him on all of this stuff he needed to get in. This, that was started this week, right? Um, so his <laughs> okay. electrician's dogs dying. So like he's just dealing with a shit storm of perfect events to where uh, he was confident two days ago that 420 was a possibility. And when I spoke to him today, 420 was no longer a possibility. Um, uh, okay. but I would assume, you know, I would assume that we get it before the end of April. We're going to put out some announcements as a show, like a, as a fundraising effort, but I will definitely make sure you get the details. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. We'll definitely come down when it's open. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. Check him out on social media at Jay Cachet. Check out the Cannabis Museum this springtime in Athens, Ohio. So far on this podcast, we don't advertise, we don't ask for money, but we do ask for your support. Please share the Creative Science Podcast and Creative Science Journal Club on social media. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, comment. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moonrunner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.